Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Selfless Vision. In today's episode, we discuss an interview with Jody Dean, author of Crowds and Party. This is a 90-minute discussion, and we invite you to call in at 347-857-1319. All right, we're back here on a Monday. Brother Carl and my brother Kari here on a Monday. We're glad to be back. And we are just very um, uh, delighted to have Dr. Uh, Jody Dean here uh, at the interview today. We've been talking about her in the last several shows and and letting people know that she will be um, on our show today. And so we're really happy to have you on, Dr. Dean. Really appreciate that. Can you, um, I know that you are, I think, a, a professor at Princeton University, or is that that's your Wikipedia biography. Uh, are you still at so, Princeton? Um, now, I, I went to Princeton. I studied at Princeton as an undergraduate, okay. and I'm a professor at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we were, uh, you know, actually, uh, um, can I call you Jody? Is that okay? Sure, please do. Yeah. Yeah, one of someone recommended your book on my Twitter feed. We have a Twitter feed called Social Visions, and uh, so somebody recommended it because we've been talking a lot about, you know, the protest uh, against we call them Forty Five. <laughs> we don't really use his name. <laughs> we call him, we call them Forty Five, but a lot of protests against Forty Five, and um, you know, they and we had also been talking a lot about you know political left political parties. Um, and so a lot of our listeners know that we've, we've had this, this, a lot of that discussion about, you know, well, what's the difference between having protests and also building a political party? Um, so I want to kind of start off with, you know, what's your take on, you know, the, the, the protest and the resistance movements that are going against 45 and, and, and his whole administration? Do you see kind of a marked difference between, say, what's going on now than, say, maybe Occupy? Um, that's a good question. So let's, I'll, let me um, start by thinking about um, what's going on right now. So one of the things that's exciting about what's going on right now is that it's all over the country, and it seems relatively sustained, right, since um, January 20th. There's been protest um, every week um, now for, um, you know, at least you know a little a little over a month, um, so that's something that's interesting and good. Um, one mm-hmm. of the things that is um, clearly different from Occupy is that these protests have um, more of a mainstream quality. Um, they're mm-hmm. organized. Uh, so, some of the organizing um, is being pushed by Move On. Um, there are other. Um, Sort of Democrats who are interested in the protest and encouraging them. It seems like these, um, like the people for Bernie Sanders and other Sanders-affiliated groups, are um, interested in these protests. So if we if we think about them, we, like we can also think about them uh, with respect to the Women's March from January 21st, right? Very much a um, a mainstream kind of protest. So from a socialist or communist 
perspective. These seem all like liberal politics, and they seem like a liberal politics that um, is targeting members of Congress, right? This whole, what, what is this, recessed resistance is something right. that's going mm-hmm. on right now as people are supposed to go out and, um, you know, push push back against their members of Congress. So this is, um, there's a lot of, about this, these protests that is focused on the state, um, focused on elector, um, electoral politics, and focused on members of Congress. Um, and so that seems very mainstream. And now we can contrast that with Occupy, where Occupy um, was also all over the country, um, but wasn't particularly targeting the state, right? It was a much um, broader expression of anger, um, and I would say anger primarily at the economy, anger at the big banks, anger at the corporations, um, anger at mm-hmm. the just dramatic increase in inequality. So I see the, the Occupy Wall Street, because it began as Occupy Wall Street, I see those protests as having had a core economic um, issue or anger or division in them. And that's something different. Now, they also, on the one hand, they attracted different people in different places, but I don't think anybody thought of the Occupy movement as a mainstream movement, right? It seemed like um, right. a kind of, of left resistance. And it didn't code, I mean, nobody kind of viewed it or as, as this is the mainstream being angry. They viewed, even right. though the slogan was, we are the 99%, it was clearly a kind of a, a left uprising rather than a kind of liberal mainstream uprising. Now, mm-hmm. I think of what I just said as, as just descriptive, right? That doesn't tell us how we should evaluate them or what, our position towards them should be or what they can become. And so one of the things mm-hmm. that I think is actually super exciting about the current movement is that there is um, a possibility, well, it's already happening, that people who have not been involved in protest politics are now doing it. I mean, that's really new in the U.S. There right. are so many people flooding into um, street-level politics, resistance-level politics, protest politics on a regular basis. And I think that's exciting as an opening and possibility for socialist and communist um, who want to try to um, in, you know, grow our parties, in, you know, get a more Marxist message out there. Um, there's more of an opportunity now for people to confront the limits of the liberal democratic system and then start to um, analyze for themselves um, in ways that are going to lead and open them up to more socialist and Marxist um, ways of understanding the present. Yeah, good point because we—that's one thing that we had talked about. That that if forty-five, you know, got, have got elected, you know, if he gets elected, that there would be more resistance. We felt that than would be if say, you know, Clinton had been elected, right? And so people would have kind of, kind of got a lull back into, you know, kind of the uh, Obama kind of uh, era, if you will. They would have been lulled back into that. Whereas now. There is this kind of uh, uh, you know res- resistance to 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 the regime itself, but then you have some also some left fringes are saying you know this is we're saying that it's not just the regime itself, but it's also the economic capitalist neoliberal system that we have to keep in you know keep in mind as well. So so um, and this is one of Carl's questions, but I don't, since I'm already talking, I'll take it. Um, Mike, so could you talk about your definition of the crowd? Then your book is called crowds and parties. 
Um, and so can yes. you talk about the, the definition of crowds and its relationship to the party? Yeah. So, Bruce, I'll, I'll give a little bit um, um, of a broader description before I answer the questions. Um, so your listeners who haven't read the book will know even while why we're talking about crowds. Um, so yeah. my basic idea is to try to um, – give an argument for or a, a kind of a, a new theoretical vision for thinking about the Communist Party or the Socialist Party and to think mm-hmm. about um, how to understand the party in our contemporary context. And the basic idea is that any version, and I'm going to just say the Communist Party because I'm thinking of that as like the abstract form. Um, oh, that's fine. Any kind of vi- mm-hmm. Yeah, any kind of vision of the Communist Party for us has to be um, oriented towards the movements, right? It has to be a movement party anchored in in real ongoing people struggles. Um, and if we and we can recognize um, just as a general past that that's actually a very orthodox. What I'm saying in everyday terms is a very orthodox Marxist position, because Marx and Engels attached socialism to the um, working class movement, right? Rather than just seeing the movement of workers in the middle of the 19th century as trade union struggle or a struggle, not even that, they didn't even have that, as a struggle for trade unions or a struggle for the wage or a struggle for the eight-hour working day, they recognized in those very struggles a struggle for, um, that uh, uh, basically opened up to communism, right? So they saw mm-hmm. in worker struggle the um, potential for and carrier of um, of communism, and so my thought is that we have to look to um, where the struggles are. I also think we have to recognize that the very basis of these struggles is economic, but we look to where the struggles are, and then we take our and we we try to figure out our relationship to that. So the whole the whole of the book is a try uh, is beginning from the intuition of how to figure out the um, an idea of the party as a kind of movement party. So that's the big picture. Okay. So the way I, I do this, then, uh, you want me to? Want me, you want to ask something before I go on? No, I just wanted to um, underscore your point. For too long, most people see the party in a much different context, and the rise of a party in a much different context. It's been either one or two ways. One, it is generally viewed as as a. a is a way of how do we bring people together of like mind and therefore we can have the capacity to get things done. Um, but it's never connected to the question of the movement. It has uh, the other, um, and so it's kind of like a more uh, uh, intelligentsia point of view. If we can get the, the best mm, of the brightest yeah. of, the, of the left, uh, we can and pull them together and, and through those 12 br- best minds we can create a party the other view is often have been is that the party will emerge uh from the trade union movement and that it it is through the trade union movement that the party will emerge and um and and oftentimes these two have been in contention so i'm glad you resituate the issue of party the emergence of party back into the movement because that part has been lost um uh, and that uh, that focus of of a party emerging from a movement, not from you know some great theoretical ten point platform or some analysis or the great leader of a you know of a trade union movement, you know Big Bill Hayward or something like that 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 
will inevitably lead to what, um, like John Foster or something like that, to create a party. Right. Uh, I'm so, oh, I'm so, I'm, I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, that is the thought, right? I mean, it can't be something from intelligentsia. And if we I mean these days, given that um, union membership in the United States is what around what like nine percent um, for um, public for private sector unions. Um, if we wait, if we wait for union leadership, we're going to be um, waiting forever. So um, right. I don't think it has to be that way. Um, I don't think it has to remain that way. But I think, given where we are right now, it's best to see the kind of, of excitement on union, from unions, like particularly, I'm thinking of the nurses' union, that they are involved in movements. That um, and then that we had, and we need to think about them that way. They are also movement players. So anyway, so theoretically then, because the book is a is a theory book, I look at the I use this term the crowd, right? I don't do it with respect to movements first of all. That's just the big picture. I use this idea of the crowd, and um, I do. And I'll, again, I keep putting off defining it, but I'm going to. Um, I turn to the crowd first and foremost because after um, my book, The Communist Horizon, came out, I had some different friends. Um, who are organizers um, talked to me saying like, oh, we really like your book, but we have a problem because everybody thinks in really individualist ways. And they keep saying, well, what about my individual view on this or my individual that or aren't we all individuals and blah, 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 blah. And so I felt like I needed to um, provide some kind of, of tools, sort of theoretical tools or argument tools for organizers for how to get around these individualist arguments. And so um, the book then opens with these critiques of individualism. And then I offer mm-hmm. in it, in the place of individualism, the idea of the crowd. And a crowd is a provisional heterogeneous being, right? The crowd is a single being. It's not just a whole bunch of individuals. It's the way that the, that being in an aggregate, the way that the whole force of many has its own dynamic. It works back on us, right? And, and, and we can think about this, like an easy example would be going to a sporting event and, you know, there's a bunch of play on the field and everybody like breathes in together and breathes out together, right? Everybody's physical reactions are the same. There's a moment where the crowd is like a single entity, right? It's just, it, it, it acts like one thing that's irreducible, to the separate individuals that constitute it. So, again, a crowd is a provisional, heterogeneous being. It won't last forever. Um, it's not just going to be a bunch of people, because sometimes a bunch of people can remain atomized, but there are times when they have this, uh, this aggregate force that, makes, that becomes this new kind of being. Um, now, one thing, I, I get this notion from a horrible, horrible person, um, Gustav Laban, who wrote, um, he was a, um, a terrible elitist, kind of almost proto-fascist. Mussolini loved his work. Um, he was writing at the very beginning of the 20th century, and he's horrible. But what's interesting is that he saw in the mass, in the growth of the mass around him, right, in the movements um, in in France, at the beginning of the 20th century into the 19th century, he saw. Um, the force of the many as, th- as threatening a kind of primitive communism, as a force that was going to work against the elites. And so I think it's good to, okay, let's take what the elites are scared of and seize it and hold on to it and see its benefit. So that's why I, I begin with this um, 
idea of the crowd. It's to break the hold of, of individualist thinking and let us recognize the force of many as it works back on us. I, I like that uh, approach because I think um, far too long um, this uh, autonomous individualist approach, in, in your book, and, and again, it's, it's, it's dif- difficult reading for some people. I enjoyed it because it was refreshing. It was like reading modern-day Plekhanov, Lenin. I mean, it was like, wow, this is all new, refreshing theory that we don't oftentimes talk about. But what you have done was you resituate the issue around individualism in a broader um, context of capitalism, that capitalism is the uh, fundamentally is, does not work for the common, doesn't have a collective um, doesn't support collectivity. It doesn't support um, common uh, uh, support and thinking and practice. It continuously p- support individual, and it gets played out in neoliberal kinds of way where we, you know, we we are the one. Um, uh, we as individual can, you know, make things happen. Um, I need to respect my individuality, who I am as a person, and and and. That, in many ways, reproduces a uh, capitalistic notion of commodity as an individualized uh, um, a commodity, uh, autonomous or separate, as moving through the circulation of capitalism. And, I, and I, that was really powerful in presenting it in, and beginning it, the whole, your whole book in that context versus um, although you you go into some parts in deep much deeper than I would, but um, <laughs> uh, on the psychology of the crowd, um, uh, I, I, I was interested in knowing um, why you, to a certain extent, moved to some parts of it as it relates to the psychology of the crowd in relationship to the what you describe as commutative capitalism. Okay, um, so that's a, that's a, a big question. I'm going to try to break it down. So um, first is just um, a little bit of you know, writing as a political theorist. Um, you know, that's mm-hmm. I'm a political theorist, and one yeah. of the it, part of my audience is also always other theorists. And in fact, some ways that you know, other people um, come to read theorists is if they see theorists being cited, or they see theorists involved in important theoretical debates. And so the things I write, on the one hand, are try, are, I try to write for, um, for activists um, and not just theorists, but I also always want to write things that will um, contribute to theoretical debates. And so there's a kind of multiple um, audiences in, in the text. Um, and that's also important um, when we're thinking about how theory works, that that it's clear that my arguments are grounded, right? That they that they go all the way to important theoretical resources. So, you know, among the three of us, we could easily, you know, we will make an argument that would say, well, as Lenin says here or Plekhanov says there, and that makes sense, and, and we understand it, and that counts as a good reason. These days, it's harder and harder for socialists and communists to um, make our arguments um, outside our small settings because not everybody has read Lenin and some people are not. Some people are, are critical of Lenin and they don't think that can decide the point. And so I've got to find ways to use, um, a, basically to have a fairly large theoretical arsenal 
so that I can try to bring more people into the argument rather than making it, you know, completely via Marx and Lenin. So those are some of the things that are that are going on as I make the argument sort of more um, and more complex in there is to try to convince people who may not be kind of with me on um, on the Lenin part. Wait, and now I forgot the rest of your question. I was thinking about just the theory part. Um, oh, no, no. What was the oh, other the, um, Well, I, I, let me park oh, my other part. The, 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 yeah, the okay. psychology of the so, crowd. Yeah, okay, so there's a, there's a bunch of things in, in that part that I think are important. So um, one of the most important things um, – for me, in, t- in thinking about crowds, I think about um, psychology, or, or, or talking about crowd psychology, is um, people who are critical of the notion of the crowd tend to, th- and these people, almost all, almost all uh, people who think of themselves as Democrats, um, whether it's liberal Democrats or radical Democrats, don't like crowds because they think crowds point in the direction of fascism, um, and they think mm. crowds fo- point point in the direction of fascism because um, Freud, for one, associates crowds with a figure of a leader, right? And so does Mussolini, but Freud does it in a kind of more you know, legitimate theoretical way. And so what I had to do was to do, go through this very complicated reinterpretation of Freud in order to break that link between the crowd and the leader, and so that's what that yeah. whole you know, chap, that whole psychology chapter is doing is trying to break that link and say, look, Freud made some big mistakes here, and here's what happened. And then, and then this, then I go also to um, um, Louis Althusser, right, who also I think made some mistakes regarding how he was thinking about um, what it is to, for there to be a political subject. And so I do some inversions of Althusser, but all of these are ways to try to say that look we can use the figure of the crowd in ways that will be productive for Marxist and productive for an emancipatory egalitarian vision. Because what it does is it says that the whole idea of the individual is, like you were saying earlier, is a kind of, it's, a, it's, it's something for capitalism. It's a tool of capitalism. And it's also a really disruptive fantasy. It's a fantasy that, that thinks of us first as, as isolated rather than as connected. And I think it's more important to kind of recognize, wait a minute, like, like we're fundamentally interconnected and crowds are one version of this, one version of this, but let's not get bogged, you know, let's not get bogged down in some kind of psych- psychological idea. Well, no, there's the ego first. So I have to do all that, that stuff with Freud. So that's one version or one answer. And there's also another answer regarding crowd psychology, which is um, there, the terms that early crowd theorists use um, like contagion and imitation. And um, right. they talk about also uh, the crowd's feeling of invincibility um, or the crowd's suggestibility. So imitation, suggestibility, um, invincibility. Um, the, for the early crowd theorists, these were, suppo- these were ways that they criticized the crowd. But I actually think these are the ways that we see how people are stronger together. Right? That people mm-hmm. together can actually move in ways that can have un- tremendous effects. Right? That's also one of the things that's so great about the protests these days is that people aren't sitting inside by themselves. They're outside feeling collective strength in a way that they haven't, you know, maybe ever or in, in a very, very long time. And then the, the kind of weird thing is that 
contemporary, like I also write in the area of um, contemporary um, media studies. And in, in media theory and network theory, there's um, a pickup of some of the same crowd terminology um, when people worry about contagion, you know, contagion or um, ideas going viral. Right? People often are critical of something going viral as if people are mindless. But what they don't recognize is actually it's not about um, something going viral being mindless or not being mindless. It's a kind of force that collectivity starts to have as it works its way through because people like being part of collectives. Right? It has, it, hmm. there's, a, there's a way that we feel better, we feel more, we feel stronger in, um, when, we're, when we're part of something collective. So this, so this kind of last answer on the crowd on this, you know, this part of the crowd psychology is it lets us um, talk about bubble effects, contagion effects, um, um, viral effects in, you know, in physical, you know, in physical locations, but also in social media. But, then, but there's also kind of, wouldn't you say there's kind of a difference between, say, the crowd that gathers at a baseball game where there's, you know, people are paying to come into the place, as opposed to the crowd that that forms you know, and a light kind of objective of, of resistance or protest or things of that sort. Because under under neoliberal forces, I can definitely see why they people would be against crowds. Because you know, again, you can't control the kind of crowds that we're talking about. You can't control the kind of to- the pro- protests we're talking about. Mainly, neoliberal forces want us to be kind of enslaved, to be this kind of you know to the market forces, to be consumers. Those those are the kind of things that they're concerned about. Not us resisting, um, you know, the dominant forces in society. So, you know, you have two different types of crowds. Yeah, those those, those kind of crowds that, you know, the the uh, the status quo and the, the bourgeois society can kind of control and profit from. And then you have the other type of crowd that they can't. Is that uh, a distinction? Yeah, I think that's important, right? The way I the way I like to think about it is, um, there we we. Um, there are some crowds that are authorized by the state and capital, right, that are put together mm-hmm. by state and capital in very tightly regulated ways because exactly mm-hmm. as you say, because of the risk of the people you know, becoming a collective being that feels its power, right, they want to avoid that at all costs. Um, so, if, I mean, actually, you can even there's a, you know historical examples of this in the you know used to um, so in the um, up, up to I think up to the um, mid or end of the 19th century, um, theater theaters were not divided into separate seats, right? Everybody was just you know in a mass right before the stage, and then it's later okay. as um, as theater becomes something for elite, then they separate theater exper- experiences into separate seats. So that they can like it's more individuated. It's more, um, you know, careful. Mm-hmm. It's more careful. And then these days, of course, exactly as you say, neoliberalism, um, economically particularly, wants to break people down, right? So in terms of uh, work, there's flexible labor. There's at-home work. There's individual contracts. There's the um, breakdown of of, of of a collective factory workforce by being replaced by more and more by um, machinery, um, and so that that all of the things where people get collective power, neoliberalism wants to um, eliminate as much as possible. So, yeah, yes, there's a difference between um, oppositional crowds and crowds that are organized by um, capital and the state. But I think we can also mm-hmm. recognize that 
even in crowds organized by capital in the state, there's a potential. There's always a kind of potential or a risk that it could that some of a, of a rupture of something else that can happen. So if we think about, um, I don't know, like the kind of Walmart um, um, Black Friday actions, or 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 that Walmart Black Friday um, shoppers sometimes can seem like they become like a rioting crowd. And so they move pretty. Mm-hmm. They um, move back and forth between being just commercial shoppers and actually almost a kind of resistant force pushing back against um, the um, restriction of their um, economic choice and now just taking for themselves. So that's and and then we also think about all of these town hall meeting protests going on. So on the one hand, these are organized by the um, by the state. On the other hand, people are taking that. That, that opportunity and making it something mm-hmm. more, and almost always, and almost always, the, the indication of that is there's vastly, excuse me, there's vastly more people there than anybody ever expected. Right. Yeah. Carl, do you want to? Uh, yeah, I, I was. Um, I, I want to ask one more question about the crowd, and then pivot over to the party, which I found really fascinating and um, really enjoyable. But let me let me back up for the crowd. My other question, I know you explored crowds as it relate to the commune and um, the Paris commune, uh, which was which was really, um, really good. Um, and your analysis was, you know, right on. But I noticed that um, most of the bourgeois writers and liberal writers um, um, oftentimes go back to the uh, French Revolution um, 1700. And they used that, you know, Robespierre and all those others that as an example of, of crowds that go awry. Um, they also use the analogy, um, not so much today, but I, I think probably in the future of looking at crowds in terms of what took place in, you know, the post-Soviet period in Romania. Um, so there's different and these become markers or examples of, in their mind, what could happen to crowds when uh, it gets out of hand. Um, and I noticed you, you didn't do it much analysis on that. I was curious as to why. Um, yeah, um, that's a good question. I mean, I'll, I'll, give, I'll, I'll give my answer first about what I think those liberals are doing. Um, I mean, I think they're just afraid of the people, right? They're afraid of the force right. of the people. And so I think, right. I think of any dismissal of crowds as, well, really what you're afraid of is the force of the people, and you want to try to um, fragment it, separate it, individuate it so that you can control it, and you control it by trying to um, you know, make, it, uh, make all politics a matter of specific individual choices rather than the force of the collective people. And so I, um, my, essentially as I was building the argument, um, I decided not really to, as little as possible, to take on liberal style critics. Um, so it, it's just a, a way of, of getting control over the argument. And so for the most part, I think of, the, of my interlocutors as people who are likely to be um, kind of, of um, autonomist, horizontalist, or radical Democrats. So the kind of people who like movements but are afraid of the party, who um, 
don't want like vanguards and don't like hierarchy, but somehow think that we can, you know, I don't know, spontaneously become communists. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't really get much of a sense of their positive vision other than um, a kind of a reaction to um, a parody of Lenin. Um, so, but those are the ones I primarily am, am thinking of arguing against, which is why I don't take on some of those other questions. I very much agree with that because people do have kind of a naivete about uh, what's it going to take to have a revolution. But, but, but let me ask you, Jody, the notion of the people, um, I know, you know that's a term that we yeah. use so long, and, and I wonder about it today because, you know, we're so, and we've always have been, so kind of balkanized uh, in this society. I mean, you know, you've had the countries almost divided right now over this, over, over this Trump administration and all that, and, and you know, you, and we're kind of divided around this, you know, race and is, issue there. There's a lot of ways that we get divided. So when we say the people, who, who are we talking about there? Because it's kind of like, it's, I don't know if they can, if you can use that any longer. It's like one collective term. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a that's a super important and, and challenging question. Um, so, um, first pass. Um, I and I actually have um, I talk about this also in um, the Communist Horizon. So that's why there's not quite as much mm. of, about the people in this book. But um, first of all, I'm, what I mean by the people is the Revolutionary Alliance of the Oppressed. And okay. um, George Lukacs gets. Um, argues, and I think correctly, that this is Lenin's notion of the people. And he says that what Lenin does is he um, knits together, right, through practical politics, an alliance between the peasantry and the proletariat, and they become uh, the revolutionary people, right? It's an alliance of the oppressed. Um, so this is a okay. divided people, a divisive people, right? This is not everyone. This is, um, in, in, in the Communist Horizon, I call it the people as the rest of us. And so it means not the elite. It's not the whole. Um, it's, it's not the elite. It's divide. It's like the 99% versus the 1%. So this first pass. This is a. This is a, a notion of the people that with a legacy in Leninism, and I also would say it's got a, a Maoist legacy as well. Um, and it's um, not a populist vision of the people. I really. I'm one of the things I'm concerned about these days is I think there's a rise in interest in. in in what people want to call left populism, which I don't think is possible. I think populism is always right-wing, and that people who want to talk about left populism are just folks yeah, refu- um, reluctant to call themselves communist. But, um, right. But, but mm-hmm. really, um, so the people is a, div- a divisive category, first of all. Now, the next part of this idea of the people is that it, it, it is not an empirical designator. And so when we want to, so there will always be a struggle and a political struggle around who is in it and what that means. Um, so, the, so the first thing, it's not, I, so I, there, there's, it, it's, the way I want to use the category is it's not ever really designating any empirical group. It designates the space of a struggle. And so let me give, and okay. let me give an example. Um, What's, what was so exciting about, and let's see, we'll go back to the Paris Commune. What was so exciting for Marx about the Paris Commune is that he saw there the people storming heaven. Now, does that mean that all of the people of France were there in Paris at this time? No. Does it mean that he meant only the, you know, 
10,000 people actually, I, I made up that number. My, my, I don't really remember how many people. But, but does he really mean a particular number of people involved? No. He means the power that their struggle opened up so that you could see the historical struggle of the oppressed. Right? So, and once you start trying to break it down into categories, then the people disappear. You just have demographic groups. But if you start rec- mm. but if you recognize um, political struggle in history as the revolutionary struggle of the oppressed, then what happens when a struggle bursts free is it always is more than itself. It's irreducible to the specific people involved or any demographic or empirical description, and it becomes this kind of world historical eruption. So if we think about now, like like think about, um, I really think that there was not always. But particularly in, the, um, in some of the early um, actions, Black Lives Matter in the U.S. was appearing as the people. I think that mm-hmm. um, particularly um, in the Ferguson um, protests, that one of the reasons it captured the entire national um, focus for a while is because it was clear it was that what was happening there was – a much bigger struggle. This was the people struggling against a um, violent, repressive po- um, police system that was thriving on the economic inequality and fundamental racism of that area, which we all know is the condition of this country, right? But, One with but, fundamental but you, racism. But do, but do you also, going back to the Paris Commune, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I've always viewed it a little differently um, in, in, in terms of, uh, of understanding of the, of the Paris Commune um, and in terms of the, how it became a powerful um, um, movement or spirit or um, impact from around the world. There was a series of working class um, struggles um, uprising, um, you know, 1848, you know, whether parts of you know many parts of Europe, you know, in Great Britain. But what was unique, I thought, with the Paris Commune was this was the first one that was successful. Now it was only 76, 75, 76 days, and it wasn't all what everyone, you know, it wasn't a perfect and pure form. But what was so unique about it was that it, it, it was successful enough to, um, to change the, 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 the conditions and the nature of, of their lives and to actually bring into existence um, socialist and communist ideas uh, in a very concrete way. And that had a dramatic impact. And, it, and in some way it was like the the uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, where it was successful, and because it was successful, um, uh, it had a dramatic impact. Do you think part of that was reflective in? I I think part of that. I mean, I agree. I agree with you in part, but I think that there was um, enthusiasm for it, even like. Early on, right before it was over, right? Or I mean, it was it was from from the initial days of it, it captured people's imagination. Right. And so then we have to say, well, how come? And I think in part the fact that 
you know, that the army had to step down, right? That, that they captured yeah. the generals, right? The very first, so that success, like you're saying, but I think it was, it was this initial crowd revolt, even before they started um, figuring out the day-to-day um, workings of the commune and the kinds of, um, of, of um, provisions and, and um, proclamations and decisions that the commune was going to make. So I think that, we, that it, it can't just be one part of it, right? It's not just the form of government, though that's something. Um, it was also the initial cla- um, crowd um, revolt. Additionally, there's something really weird about the Paris commune, and I mentioned this really briefly in the book, which was there there were lots of interpretations at the time, and even right. today there are different interpretations right. of it. And so we're comrades, and so we, of course, have this. This was the first um, form of the working class self-governance, right? So that's what makes this as exciting. This is the oppressed taking over and governing for themselves. Like, that's why we're excited about it. But for Christ's sake, in the United States, um, there were debates from Southerners and Northerners over which, you know, how to understand the Paris Commune. And, um, you know, a, a, um, the former vice president of the Confederacy um, liked the Paris Commune because he thought it was the revolt of, of, of part of the country against a federal system and even called himself a communist. Now, that's absurd, right? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I but know. it was but, – but, but, but it reminds us that there was – disagreement at the time over the meaning of the commune and we have um a view that that anchors the commune in the history of working class struggle um but not everyone shared that view and so part of the excitement is the i would say it's like when the, the when the people erupt in history there's always a struggle over what it means and that's part of the mm. force of of the people is we you know we we champion them and we want to push it in one direction and um, our opponents push it in another one. Yeah, um, before you, I know because we're getting, getting close to that hour that we talked about. I want to ask the question. I know we're going to talk about the party uh, and the Vanguard Party, but I want to I want to jump really quickly before we run out of time on this notion of, of communism because we you know we talk about the socialist vision and and we talk about socialist vision because people can't even think about communism if they can't even grasp you know socialism. And, and and it's so good to hear somebody talk about communism and not, you know, not not babble about it, not not stutter, but but to really have a vision for communism. And so, so could you talk about your vision and why you advocate communism? Because I I think it's a wonderful system, it, it, but but it's going to take people doing some serious kind of far-reaching thinking, you know, and and, and rethinking about nature and life and all that. But uh, could we could you talk about that? Yeah. So first and foremost, um, well, I'll give a, a practical reason I talk about communism and as a communist and then an ideal reason. The ideal reason is there is no better vision of a political system than uh, a political economic system than one that says from each according to ability to each according to need. And that right there is the kind of fundamental core 
of communism. It's production based on collective need, not on the benefit of the few. And it tells us also if we're going to have production based on collective need, that you have to have the collect, you have to have a collective, you have to have the collective participating and determining for itself what its needs are. Um, it has to be able to, you know, grapple with all of the the um, differences within it and and meet those needs. So I think first of all. The, the um, ideal vision of communism is the um, is what's worth fighting for. Um, secondly, I think it's really important to um, seize and hold on and affirm communism as a um, political position because um, the capitalist and Republican and conservatives always trash even Democrats as being communist. And so if they're afraid mm-hmm. of communism. So let's let's let then we're even stronger, right? Okay, we, yes, we are what you're afraid of, and doggone it, you should be afraid because communism is the one ideal that is worth political that is really worth um, kind of you know overthrowing everything to um, to instantiate, and it goes against everything you capitalist, everything that you want, and that's the final right. reason to say communist is that communism tells anybody who hears it that there is nothing acceptable about capitalism capitalism is a system of exploitation and this is my i in the united states i mean honestly honestly these days i mean it's important to struggle as socialist and communist i don't i think that that um we shouldn't have there shouldn't be divisions among people who identify as or, or, or or espouse communism and socialism particularly where we are you know that's sort of one thing in the u.s right now where it should be one thing but in the in the larger kind of um, European debate and the, the theoretical position, one of the problems is that socialism has been compatible with a kind of acceptance of regulated capitalism, and communists mm-hmm. say that's not acceptable. That is not our yeah. our horizon is one that's ultimately completely different from each according to ability to each according to need. Thank you. We're going to talk about that more after you have to. Yeah. But, but I wanted to get a, 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 in a question before she leaves. Um, uh, yeah. A question oh, wait, of could, the party. Wait, I'm going to have to go. Sorry. Are you guys going to like, 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 like say all sorts of critical stuff after I'm off the phone? Oh, no, no, no. no. We're oh, actually no, going to do a deeper no. dive in your stuff. So, no. But a question I have uh, um, you, you described. Um, that the, um, the 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 reason why we uh, are missing a party is because uh, of political will. There's not a will for the yeah. party. And you described your, the yeah. party as a bearer of lessons, um, as a, as a way of you know solidarity, strengthening collectivity, sustaining courage in the face of capitalism. Um, this is a, a, a very powerful and different interpretation. I wouldn't say a completely different interpretation, maybe a deeper interpretation. To most people who think of the party uh, simply as this uh, vanguard engine that's, that, yeah. that, is self, that is basically um, in a mechanical way, that everyone has a role. There's agitated propagandists, and, and, and they're, they're highly secretive, they're cadre, um, and um, they have a singular focus, uh, which is the revolution. What can you speak a little more to 
both the lack of the political will and your concept. We'll start with your conception of the party and then end with your why there's political will. Um, so I think of the party as a um, as an organization that gives us the possibility of not thinking of ourselves in ways determined by capital. And so, and it does this by making sure that by, by giving us a form of association connected with you know, the historical struggle of the oppressed. And so that means that the um, Communist Party has to, um, you know, it's going to have to make sure that the workers are not the workers, it has to make sure, but work, workers and cadre and members, it has to make sure that the people um, who are part of the party have a sense of. Uh, of theory of ideas of, of of what they're doing right it's not the what's important about the party is that it's not this kind of eclectic combination of a bunch of people expressing their views and just saying well what do you think we should do what do i think we should do it's something completely different right it's a principled a form of association it's a voluntary and mm-hmm. principled form of association connected with the histor- with the work i would say now with working class struggle and the um, struggles of the oppressed with an eye to a con- the communist horizon um this necessarily has to be a revolutionary vision because we're not going to get to um communism by just the liberal democrats saying oh yeah we're tired of of you know running the country right we're not going to get there by capitalists saying um oh geez you know you're right we have taken more than our fair share um and so revolution has to be on the horizon and once we recognize that revolution has to that that revolution is going to be necessary then that means that we need to figure out how do we prepare for that and so it's a form of association that you know educates trains and does prepare for revolution now we're probably i don't know under these trump years who knows but um you know two years ago i would have said we are fairly far from revolution and so what that means is it's important to particularly in this heavy duty capitalist context to try to educate people um and this is theoretical education, but also practical organization. I mean, I, I feel like since um, 89 that there's been a real loss of people's capacity to organize, people's sense of solidary commitment with, oh, there's a strike in my town, I need to go support it, or you know, there's a, um, I need to help organize a rent strike in this building. I think that people's sense of solidary action Um, has fallen away and so a party is also a vehicle for generating that so education memory of historical struggles and practical experience in solidary organizing um with and and the thing is what you could also make the whole argument from what's missing or what's been missing in the last 20 years or so of of left political practice what's been missing is organizations that endure that are not just like capitalist inspired NGOs. What's been missing mm-hmm. is a sense a kind of principled sense of we have a vision of what we want and, and we want to, ha- we want to work toward a strategy for getting there. Um, duration hasn't been there. We have one-off actions. So I think a party is a way of um, providing education, endurance, and a location that can strategize. So, so then, can I can I ask about what do you think about the left party 
in this country now because it seems to me, very, you know, extremely weak. Um, even though this is an opportune time, really, right now, to be educated. This is why we have this show, and this is why we have you on is to try to, you know, educate people and bring and build build a dialogue that's necessary to right. to, to build a, a left movement, to necessary to build a party, necessary to build workers' consciousness. And we we have, you know, several shows about you know we talk about these things, but. But I, I'm really troubled by the weakness of the left movement and its inability to to come together and sustain in a sustainable way. Um, I I agree with you on that, um, but but I also have hope. So mm-hmm. one of the things um, since Trump was elected, um, I know at least three or four of the small parties have found their memberships growing by leaps and bounds. Right, like right. I mean, a Democratic Socialist—they're not a party, but mm-hmm. they but they've been growing. I think right. my understanding yeah. is that um, um, ISO, International Socialist Organization, has been growing. Socialist right. Alternative and PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation, and I'm there's likely um, those small parties whose, whose name I didn't re- uh, mention, but um, but at least the ones I mentioned, I know that they are growing right now, and more people. Are um, you know, are joining and expressing interest? I, it's my mm. understanding is also that there have been over the last few years increasing efforts at um, having um, events and projects where different parties are working together. And I think that's a really mm. I know that they've been doing some of that in Boston and some of that in Philadelphia, and mm. I think that is a really important um, move forward. Um, I think um, groups like the Answer Coalition, really important as um, a kind of, of organizing space that brings together a variety of different organizations, um, getting them to work together in coalition. So all of these, I think, are promising efforts. And then what it comes down to, right, is um, people starting to recognize, I can't do, I can't do what I need to do as a communist by myself. And if I am right. a communist, I have to, I have to be in a party. I have to work with others. I mean, I think that it's going to have to come down to that. Like as long as people remain caught in their, um, in their individualism and in thinking that, Oh, you know, this article or this blog post or this tweet is my political action, then right. it's not going to happen. But the more people see the power that comes from, working in a collective and then being in a collective that has some kind of history and can endure, then I think we'll see continued growth with these parties. And Co- uh, Carl, yeah, one more question. Cause about yeah. Uh, I, yeah. The, the other question um, um, related to, I mean, you described it as a, um, you know, mode of association, um, but also um, what do you see? And you put back in, in the book back uh, at the role of the party as a relationship to political power. But what do you see as probably one of the weaknesses of a political party that we need to be cognizant of? For those people like myself who have been in, engaged and in, in left politics for many, many years, who came through the new communist movement um, mm. in the 70s, um, many, many folks have laughed that period, jaded, burnt out, and the rest. And, you know, the notion of let's do this again with another party um, uh, has been often difficult. I have oftentimes articulated that 
we have to have a process to get there um, yeah. through, um, uh, you know, whether uh, through a rebuilding of an alternative or a building an alternative electoral party, um, which is separate from a political party in a sense that focused on the, uh, the communist horizon. I, I always say the, the, the focus on communist horizon is not electoral politics formation. Those yeah. are two different formations. But what do you see as probably one of the weaknesses that we should avoid um, going forward in building a party? Um, sectarianism. Um, a failure to um, be re- a, a failure to be responsive to the the gains um, made by um, in, in anti-racist struggle, in feminist struggle, in um, um, LGBT struggle, and, a, and, 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 and in the failure to recognize those gains, a kind of repetition of some of the um, patterns of, of hierarchy that um, many young people criticize what they understand the old parties to look like. Um, so I think that would be mm-hmm. a, uh, first, at least the first thing. It's just they have to be, they have to be, you know, in, insistently um, um, anti-white supremacy, insist, insistently um, anti-male dominance, um, and that those things are, are really, really crucial um, for yeah. going forward. And I also think, you know, avoiding sectarianism. And I mean, when I when we talk to um, people who are under thirty. They're not really heavily invested in a lot of, of small party, you know, historical debates, right? They want to be part mm-hmm. of action. They want to be part of right. changing the world. Um, and then the one thing I would want to, I hope, um, for people who were involved in the new communist movement for the 70s is I think there's so much good that can come from um, sharing your experiences, like what you learned, in a positive way. If you can like overcome the kind of a sense of some of the disappointments, but but sharing the, um, the what was great, why were you in it, what did you learn, what did you benefit, because a lot of that knowledge is getting lost, right. and yeah. um, and you've got a whole generation of people who've grown up not just in a capitalist society but in a neoliberal society, and I think mm-hmm. um, for some of us it's almost hard to imagine how different their sense of possibility is. From the ones that, like, you know, from that, from that, you guys had a radically different sense of possibility in the new communist movement from what these folks did, and so finding ways to to capture that and transmit it back can be tremendously educational and and can you know, it can further the revolution for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Jody, I'm not going to hold you. I just want to say thank you so much for being here. Now you oh, know, yeah. know that I've, I've seen you uh, on YouTube. And I, I want to let my, our listeners know to, to go to YouTube, look up your name, Jody Dean. You can find out, you know, some more interviews that you've done. Um, do you have a blog or anything that, that you, you, you um, kind of keep I up do, that people but, can see? Um, I don't keep it up anymore, so I'm not going to promote okay. it because I haven't put yeah. anything on it in a long time. But uh, thank hey, you guys so much. Yeah. Thank you guys yeah, so no much problem. for having me on. This has been a very fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank yeah. you so much. And I'll send you a link to the show so you can you can hear what we say afterwards. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> that's all right. Great. Well, have a good well night, thank you, you so much, and have a great evening. 
All right. Take care. All right. Take good care. All right. Bye. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. It's, that was it's, great. It's a, that was great. Yeah, that was really, really great. I, one of the reasons why I really wanted her on the show is because part of what is missing, and I, and I know this generation of activists are actually asking for, is a new group of theorists, as she describes herself, which is true. She is a theorist. She's not necessarily mm-hmm. uh, someone who's going to tell you a cookbook way of doing things for activism. It's a theoretical um, uh, argument that she is articulating that has been absent in the 90s and most of the 2000s. She is actually the new generation of theorists that I enjoy reading because it it challenged consistent notions from other uh, 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 you know, you know, when I right now the dominance of anarchist thinking, the dominance of some of the sectarian thinking, the dominance of a liberal neoliberal thinking, and she cr- framed her theoretical thinking for this new communist horizon. So she's an, she's the, you know I consider the next generation of our theorists. Well, not me. I wouldn't say my theorists because I'm getting kind of old, but the millennial theorists. Um, that will mm-hmm. turn to to try to struggle. And part of it is, um, and I'm going to read The Communist Horizon next, um, part of it is one of the reasons why the book Crowd and Party, because it, it reintroduced both of those theses that have been lost, because much of our young activists has been grounded in uh, NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations, or small events. They can't see movement emerging, that their movement is a constant motion of a- activism on many different levels that raises people's political consciousness and keep them engaged. And she described this movement not in the more neoliberal context of where you connect it online, but actually physically in a place. And that was the power of the Ferguson uh, uh event was there were masses of people coming to Ferguson, participating in civil disobedience, coming from all over the country and having such an impact around the world that people in Palestine and other places where their spirits were being lifted and connected to the Ferguson movement. So I just wanted to let our audience know that, that, um, and there will probably be others that will come on you know, come into existence and emerge. Um, uh, and she has no problem of critiquing certain folks, struggling with certain folks, which is which is missing. Uh, we apologize with a lot of people, but we don't attempt to struggle through ideas and try to, you know, struggle around ideas to move us to, to a higher plane. And she does that um, in a way that... Um, it may be a little tough for some people, so I, I, I don't recommend it for popular reading, but for those of us who are trying to get a handle to build something, to develop something, to deepen something, to make, to sustain something for more than just simply the event, uh, this is the book that you know I strongly suggest for people to read, to struggle over, debate, have a dialogue and discussion around. So we uh, just uh, say we got Brother Naj on the line, right? Oh, yes, sir. How y'all doing? Hey, hey. All doing good. All right. 
All right, all right. Did, were you able to hear the interview, Anaj, or you just kind of were you calling in at the end? No, I'm just no, I'm just getting in, so I'm going to download it in the morning and check it out. So okay. iTunes, okay. get those yeah. get those hits in. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, def- definitely worth downloading. It was a good uh, interview. I, I mean, I was sitting here, Carl, just thinking, man, if I was if I was taking her class, man, I'd just be on a high know. level the whole time. I know. So you I know, know. Uh, it's, it's like really, it's, but it, but it, but it's, it's a good challenge to have. And and I want to I want to come back really really quickly, Carl, about about the notion about communism because mm-hmm. I know we don't really just you know we don't we don't you know we've said it. But we don't really right. talk about it. And a lot of times I, right. I don't talk about it because I know people just can't even can't even conceive because we have to spend so much time just trying to talk about you know to me petty things about uh, you know the Affordable Care Act, which is like you know we should have been beyond that by now. I mean, so it's like it's so petty that we have to spend time and we haven't gotten as humanity gotten beyond that kind of thing that we haven't gotten beyond the notion that you know we need to you know we should have. You know, economic political system, but provides for all, and, and people can't even. So many people just can't even conceive of that. It, it just seems like it's almost impossible. But yet, there has to be voices like ourselves and other people who who keep pushing this and who can say, you know, no, I'm not afraid of communism. I think it's a good idea, and I think it's it's one that if we are going to survive as a humanity, we have to go to the level of one. We cannot spend our lives being driven by. Market forces. This is one thing that I put on the on the Twitter this weekend was that to, for the most part we're driven by market forces. We're, our whole notion of survival is, is our ability to to sell ourselves in, in, the, in the workplace, to sell stuff to other people, to buy stuff. This is what we do day in and day out. And you have you know the bourgeois class is is uh, is built totally on this this kind of market driven so-called free market society, uh, uh, economic system, and, and it, it pervades everything that we do. And, and, and for me, she talks about that in the book, too, about this notion of work, you know, how we, how we are always trying to figure out how can we get better skills, how can we be more productive, how can we, you know, we're not productive enough, you know, and, and it's, it's, you can see it online. It just, it just, you know, it's thousands of articles about, you know, how can you be more productive? How can you work better? How can you make more money? And we're driving ourselves fucking crazy behind that. And we're, this is not sustainable. We have to move toward a society where we're not driven in that particular way because we wind up being driven against each other. And then there's a notion, too, that this, these borders, I mean, these borders are just ridiculous. I mean, now that you can't really even go anyplace else without – the place that you're going, figuring out, well, what do you have? What, do you, what, what are you bringing with you? So it's not even just, you know, immigrant people coming to the United States, but there are other countries that will do the same thing. If you go there, they're like, well, yeah, you can come here and visit, but if you ain't got nothing to bring, if you're not bringing nothing to the table, um, you got to go, okay? So, so if you got if you got some skills that that country needs or wants, they'll give you, you know, you can, yeah, you can get your green card and get right in there. But if you don't, uh, you need to get back on the plane or the ship or whatever, whatever way you came here and get the fuck out. That kind of thing is, is, is seriously bad um, to have that. And so, I, you know, I do want to talk about communism more. I, I do, I might read, I'm going to read that book, Communist Horizons, as well, because we don't even, we don't even talk about it. And, and, and one more point is the, the number of books that I read, Carl, about even socialism, they end up being talked 
we talk, they, 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 the city want to talk about socialism, but they end up talking about capitalism. It's, in other words, it's so hard to even people to imagine what a socialist society looks like. I know it is because, you, like she said, when you talk about socialism, it, it is kind of a pivot. You know, you're still trying to hang on to capitalism in a sense. Or you're, but I know, I know, I've always seen socialism as a transition to communism. It is that it's a, it's a transitory thing. It's, it's a under socialism class struggle heightens. It doesn't, you don't resolve everything under socialism. What you do is you go from capitalism and socialism heightens that struggle into a move toward a, a, a common society. I really think we can have a society that is not uh, based upon fetish uh, a money system, that we can have a society where people are not working um, uh, 40 hours a week. And a matter of fact, that work is not just based upon, uh, I mean, that society is not based upon work, but just based upon what we need and don't need. That's it. It's not about a thing of you got to be a worker. It's just got to be a fucking human being. And so, you know, it, I, I want us to kind of keep coming back to the notion of communism because I, I think that uh, it, it should be enlightening to people because I know that, that free, free market Marxist uh, capitalist forces, they don't want you to talk about that because they know their shit is raggedy. They know that whole thing is raggedy, but they keep people from not looking at it and thinking about it too long. So sorry for you know talking so long on that, but no, I think you you raise a good point. Um, I agree with that. Socialism is is a transition, and that our ultimate vision, um, for particularly revolutionary socialists and scientific socialists, is communism. Um, but um, and we need to have that discussion. But that discussion is serves as a point of of your North Star, where you're going, uh, where you're ultimately yeah. going. But you're living in the reality that how you struggle to seize political power in a, a capitalist society so you can, you know, uh, you know uh, transform it and, and build it towards, um, towards communism. This, this, her, the, and one of the things I do like that, you know, she, you know, speaks, you know, unequivocally about communism, but the, there's two different, there's three, actually, three different uh, constellations. There's the anarchists who've always, who's always spoke about, you know, communism as well, particularly coming out of the Paris Commune abroad and, and uh, Bukhan and, and those cats um, at, at the time of Marx. There's um, the, um, those who were connected to uh, the Marxist uh, uh, notion of communism uh, through the Communist Party, whether uh, in Russia, China, um, Cuba, and different places. Um, even when it was social democracy, they, to a certain degree, tr- tried to speak to the question of communism. But it was more, more or less the reason why they changed their name in Russia from a social um, uh, democratic party or Bolshevik party to a communist party because they want to make a clear distinction between those who were um, social imperialists, um, and particularly Karolkovsky and those guys. Uh, there's a not. This is a new constellation of folks. Um, they're from uh, one of the Alan Bayou. Um, uh, you know, I think he's out of France. Um, Jody Dean here in the U.S. and um, uh, Savoy Zijak out of uh, uh, former um, yeah uh, Yugoslavia. He's, 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 yeah, he's hard. He's hard to handle. Okay. Yeah, so those three had a – there was a conference, um, I think 2012, where they had a dis, um, to, to re-inject the notion of communism. And, and I know I haven't identified all the players that were at this conference, but their role was to re 
re-inject the notion of communism back in the discussion when it just didn't, no one was actually talking about that. It was a dirty word, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe where, you know, the, uh, the Berlin Wall collapsed and, you know, many of them wanted to join the, the U.S. capitalist market, world market, and kind of thing. Times have changed. Um, and part of the reason why we have to have the discussion is, is twofold, and it's critical. And I, and I say it's extremely critical to have the discussion because I, I came out of the new communist movement where speaking about communism and socialism was on our lips all the time. That disappeared in the 1980s largely to, because of the emergence of another ideological uh, thinking called postmodernism. And that basically said, you know, all that is irrelevant because the class of the Soviet Union and, 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 and you guys are all a bunch of sexist and racist. And therefore, postmodernism, uh, we're going to deconstruct stuff, but we're not going to rebuild anything. We're going to make it all horizontal. And, 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 and in many ways, I, I find it was a very uh, contagious, uh, insidious kind of thinking that is basically um, – uh, uh, destroyed the thinking of young activists. It's pervasive in most of the university where many young activists come out of, and that kind of thinking which says we don't build nothing, we don't build parties, and we don't see the future. It is we we work in the moment of the now, and therefore, you know, we need to be you know recognize all our identities and and and, and, and speak of our differences versus you know, try to think of us in a broader sense for uh, uh, a new vision for a new society. So that was pushed to the side, except for, you know, the smaller, you know, parties, you know, the Socialist Worker Party, Communist Party, uh, USA, you know, they they were keeping the flame going um, of, of, that dis, of that discussion. So today, they're, you know, Jody Demon and others are now re-injecting that because the time is now. Whereas in the 90s where it just seemed like neoliberalism was just blowing through, you know, people were, were supposedly getting better off, the more millionaires, they, there was no, in their mind, no economic crisis. People were doing well, Eastern Europe and, and Europe uh, from all, all over the world. It just, it, it, it was a question of not an economic question, it was simply identity question and, and ethnicity questions and nationalism. And so yeah, well, since the economic crisis, I think all of that is now back on the table. So it's, it's a, a different dynamics. So both the theory and practice is beginning to connect up again. Well, I, I'm, I'm not – yeah, I, mean, I want to come back to that. I'm, I'm not sure if it's, if it's on the table. It's on the table for some people, but I'm not sure if it's on the table right. in terms of the kind of many, collective right, right. Uh, kind of society yeah, for the many right now. But, but so I just want to – we have about – 15 minutes left. Now I kind of want to let you uh, uh, come in and talk about, you know, what do you think about that issue of communism? Do you have, you know, discussions about it or hear things about it? Uh, well, I would say it, just in those, you know, encapsulated small spaces, you hear about it. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, you, you're looking at the dynamics you see on TV to where it's yeah. uh, people on the <clears throat> so-called left who's, ultimate goal is getting the Dems back in power play, uh, and then they right. go back home and sit down. And on the right, right you yeah. have this huge move towards uh, trying to turn social justice warrior uh, what they did to the word liberal. 
So it's kind of this, this, you know, Orwellian way of attacking anything that's about changing the society while they're also dealing with, you know, kind of the reverse Adam Smith in that uh, labor is mobile, but they want borders. They want extreme control. They don't, don't want labor to be able to move, but capital is even more fluid and able to move even quicker than it used to. And they're not seeing this as a problem. They're looking at it as, well, we'll just join the side that's winning and hope we get the, the biggest share of crumbs given. So the Republican side is kind of deferential to power and the Democrat uh, so-called left side right now in America, for the most part, is just assuming uh, the Democrats have their best ideals in mind. So we got two passive classes of people right now as far as the majority and then the people who are looking towards radical ideas, who are looking towards the future, uh, the best they're coming with is basic, you know, universal basic income, but not knocking down these structures. So I, I don't yeah, know. Not, it's a yeah, weird transitionary period. No, you know, I don't. I, I don't mean to say it's weird. I, I think that 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 is 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 pretty. You know, like you can see where that could cut, where it's going to go. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it there. Mm. I, I I do think that I've been thinking about this notion though that I know that this struggle is 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 a is a like you said, it's a proletariat working class struggle. Those are the people there. I I I do get that. I totally get that. But I think at the same time, the one of the things I liked about the notion of Occupy's notion of the the one percent versus nine nine percent versus the one percent, or even just the notion of looking at systemic repression, is that we have to see our, we have to we have to not only talk about this as a working class struggle, the struggle of of the people. We definitely got to start there, but at the same time, we got to we got to look at this thing as a broader sense of again, this capitalist system is is tearing us apart, whether you're rich or not. I mean, even if you have to, I mean, look at what these what the bourgeoisie has to do in order to maintain their power. I mean, you know, there's no reason why somebody like a Trump in his class needs to run for president. I mean, he, he has plenty of money. I mean, the people that are around them have plenty of money, but they feel as though they need to do this to keep usurping power because they always thought like they're going to lose something. They always feel like they're gonna, somebody's going to take it. They, they, they felt like they really felt like that, that Obama, of, of all people, who, who has hardly no Political, political power, had no money really, um, that he was going to really like uh, set up some things that was going to upset their way of life. And, and, and sure, I mean, they may not have, they might look at it as though it's like, well, if he, if he can do what he gets to do and raise his taxes and stuff like that, that means that, okay, I might have, you know, I might be a, a billionaire, but that might reduce me down to not being a billionaire, and I don't like that. But whatever it is, they are scared, and they, they act on that because they thought they have to sustain that. So this is how bad and insidious it is that it not only is, is um, oppressive to the working class, the people, but it's also oppressive to the planet in and of itself because we, the, the, the bourgeoisie has to say, I don't give a fuck about the environment as long as I'm making more and more money. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I cannot concede that we are destroying the environment because fuck I'm making too much money. I'm having too I have too much power. I'm, I'm I have too many uh, too many things that I that uh, too many big houses and big homes and all this stuff that I have. I got too much and, and that can't be a problem with the environment. Do you see what I'm saying is that this is just overtaking our our um our consciousness 
to the point that we don't even see that this shit is falling apart because of the economic political system we have and that this capital system is not sustainable. We cannot keep this up and survive. I don't think we're going to survive if we keep it up. I really don't. Yeah, well, it's like they take on the, the, the ideals of an old nobility class to where ultimately they don't like being told what to do or to be coerced mm-hmm. into something. So in their mind, they should be the deciders because they're the ones who've reached the top echelon and the private uh, charities or private ideas about giving to where they get uh, kind of a payment in the form of the gratitude of, of other people should be sufficient uh, for society. Everything else, they want dog-eat-dog. And the reality mm-hmm. of it is they're pulling way too much money, influence, and power out of society and leaving yeah. so so little. And the, the right. short-sightedness of putting somebody like Trump in who appoints people uh, who used to just pay a middleman, now you're directly you know, employing the person in government, uh, you kind of remove a lot of the facade. So it makes it easier to see uh, how not only corruption is built in, but the system, you know, lives on it and thrives on it. And just getting mm-hmm. on to that capital part, uh, the capitalism cannot actually exist without the oppression of some people across the world. So as people get oh, more yeah. information and things become more global, people start to understand and make, you know, correlations uh, between, okay, what's happening in this nation that is only, you know, giving out natural resources and only has a, you know, a monocrop economy and the prices that you get. So people are starting to, you know, realize those kind of things too. So I don't know, I don't know man. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think we're in a good moment too, despite all the things I said before about, you know, the dire part of it. I think we are in a good mm-hmm. moment just in the sense that somebody like Trump inspires protest music. Somebody like Trump mm-hmm. inspires people to study more, read more. And, you know, we, we're going to see what happens. But uh, yeah, we're uh, I'm with you guys as far as the left right now. That's <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. We'll language language is the why. biggest barrier to me. Don't say healthcare yeah. outcomes, say people dying. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> like we we yeah. got to get the language right. 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 And I think exactly. that's the role of the, the the left. I think one of the things you said it um I think there was someone made a point where um uh when it's completely dark you can see the stars and I think we're in that kind of period where we can see if a law way vision in the midst of the chaos and destruction that is taking place. But our role of the left ought to be, uh, as, as Jody Dean mentioned, was um, we have to be bearer of, of lessons uh, learned and, and as well as to work to help change the language, as you describe it. Um, you can't talk about we want uh, just health insurance, but we need to talk about, you know, the, the right to, you know, universal health care, the right to life, um, the right to um, have the quality uh, education um, and, and culturally competent education. We've, we need to be in those debates, in that place, to struggle to make sure that the, the message is clear. Because I don't think the Demo- it is clear that the Democratic Party is not going to be able to do that. Um, and, and, and they're already talking about how they're going to co-opt a lot of these um, protests that are taking place. And I think one of the things that the role of the left is to point out those contradictions within the Democratic Party, but also make clear that capitalism, no way, no how, cannot fundamentally provide, um, you know, human, basic human needs for everyone and, and, and link ourselves around the world. But, yeah, but because I think that's nothing, and, and I'm, I'm good to hear you guys being hopeful like that, but I, and maybe this is kind of where I'm at right now, Right now, in terms of my time, 
I mean, we, we, we can't even talk. I mean, when we talk about health care and we talk about, you know, universal education, you know, the first thing people say is, well, who's going to pay for it? I mean, so people are so steeped into that kind of thinking. And, and in a society that is... I think you have to... I think you have to... Yeah, but you, you have to have part of that discussion with people. But you... Mm-hmm. The, the reason why we talk about comics horizon because it is our vision. It is our hopeful vision yeah, yeah. for well, a better right. world. And so we right. operate not in the, the fact that the, cap, the capitalist society will destroy the earth and it will implode and it will create two worlds, one earth and west, earth you know, east. We work with the vision that we, we, we look at it in a way that we can struggle through these contradictions. We can struggle through these challenges of destruction to build a new world. So we, we look at this as an opportunity that I would say, if you asked me in the 90s how I felt, I would tell you I'm totally depressed because I didn't see mm-hmm. the kind of mass movement that was taking place. I didn't see the kind of protest that was happening. I was seeing that the mm-hmm. neoliberal was the one through their NGOs were articulate. I see people protesting. Yeah, they're not saying let's struggle for, you know, protesting for communism or socialism, but they're protesting. They're protesting that in large number, not because we called it or even that the Democratic Party called it. These are people on their own that we're going to go do something. And this is where the motion is taking place that gives me hope, where that hope did not exist in the 90s. And as much as I could be hanging around my leftist friends and we could talk about, you know, theoretical issues all we want, the reality on the ground was qualitatively different. So I think today... Yes, but you, we need to be real as the way you describe it in very concrete terms. You, you, you need to be truthful for pe- people, you know, tell no lies and no easy victories. Uh, you need to, you know, point out how ruthless and dangerous uh, capitalism is. But in the process of, 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 of raising people consciousness and pointing out the realities of things, you also have to provide an alternative to say there is another world, there's another way, there's another vision. And, our, and it's only the masses who are going to be able to change it. It will not be – no messiah is not going to lead us out of, out of, this, out of this mess. It is only we, as part of this, as described by Jody Dean in, in the notion of crowd, that it is only we that together could be able to get out of this morass and, and proceed to the next society. So I, I am, you know, I am hopeful. I am more hopeful than I've ever been since the 70s. And so um, I, 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 because I, I think we finally have made the turn. Um, yeah, there's going to be some setback. There's going to be some bootleg joker going is going to, uh, going to misrepresent and, and cause the working class and the press people to, you know, be veered off and, 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 uh, and, and destructive and, and, and no end way. But, at the, it, but there's motion now where there wasn't one um, in, the, in the 90s. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't – yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, we shouldn't have vision because that's why we're doing the show. Uh, that's you know that's what we that's what, that's why we're doing this. I, I I think what I see is people are no longer delusional about the 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 prop the, the capitalist propaganda. I mean they they definitely see that there is a a a, a, a power difference uh, between those who own means of production, those who are wealthy, and those who are not. I think people do see that, um, but it's going to take. 
It's going to take the left. It's going to take conscious people to begin to have this kind of dialogue, keep having the dialogue, not begin, but to keep having these kind of dialogue and vision about socialism and communism. And the reason why I say even go toward the vision of communism is, you know, cast your net real large. Cast just like have this, just, just, just as the stars are far, far away from us, have, your, have that vision of communism as something far, but something that we can reach, something that we can move forward to so that we can see that our struggles are not just about the, now, the here and now, but we do the here and now. We, we, we struggle with 45. We struggle with the regime and all that, but we know that, that ultimately we need to say, look, we want, we want a different society. And I want to, that's, that's, that's the language I want, to, I want to see the left infuse, that we want a different world. We want a different world as possible. And I know that's a cliche, but I think it's a good, appropriate cliche that a different world is possible. It doesn't, it doesn't say that a different world is inevitable. No. I think that's naive. It's naive to think it's inevitable. But it is possible if we wake up, if we wake up to uh, the kind of change that we want to, that we want to see. So anyway, I just you know, but anyway, I'm only running out of time. But we're gonna, I want us to come back to this question because I think it's very, very important. Any, any last points? We got about a minute. Uh, check out weare65.com. Uh, check out uh, the movement for Black Lives. Uh, you can find hundreds of organizations within those two websites, and you know people can get involved. Just put in your zip code and find people in your area. Definitely. I've, I've been on that. Definitely. That's a good point. Very good point. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, and we'll be back. I think we'll be back next Monday. Not sure what yeah. the topic is going to be. But go ahead. Uh, so, yeah. So, we'll be back uh, this time. But definitely check out Jody Dean on YouTube. There's, some, there's a lot more about There's some interviews with her there. And, um, you know, check out her book, Crowds uh, and Party. I think if you have. You've been doing some reading, you know, left reading before, then you can't get through the book. It's very, it's, it's, a lot of it's very insightful that's uh, worth, the, worth the read. So I really appreciate her coming on. And we will be trying to have some other uh, authors come on um, as we connect with them. Thanks a lot, you guys. Thank you.